0: This episode is sponsored by Interactive Brokers. Interactive Brokers clients earn interest of up to 4.08% on the idle cash in their brokerage accounts. That's just one of the many reasons clients use Interactive Brokers to trade stocks and options, futures, currencies, bonds, funds, and more globally. Minimize your costs to maximize your returns. Rates subject to change. Learn more at ibkr.com rates.
1: The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of The Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success.
0: Lousy earnings, stocks go higher. Fed stays somewhat hawkish, stocks go higher. Blowout jobs report, stocks go higher. Short squeeze games, anyone? Our guest today, Eric Townsend, founder of Macro Voices. All this and much more on episode number 802 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Wow. I mean, that was pretty, pretty obnoxious from an aspect of if you're watching fundamentals, you're loving it if you're into technicals. And, you know, there's a lot for anybody. The fact is that we did see some crazy things happen with regard to the reaction to much of the news that came out. And uh, that's on the heels of an incredible month as well. And I got to say, you're probably thinking, what have we been seeing? What is going on? We're going to get to that. I'm Andrew Horowitz. I am the host of this podcast, Discipline Investor. I'm also the founder and president of Horowitz and & Company, and I want to welcome you to February. <laughs> Before I get any further, I got a bunch of emails. Every once, every once in a while, I get up this pile. It's, it's kind of odd, actually, uh, of people saying, hey, uh, you know, do, do, you, do you take on new clients? Or, you know, do you do 401k rollovers, IRAs, trust accounts, things like that? And I'm reminded every once in a while that I should probably mention to you that yes, that is something that we do. We are open for business. This is the real deal. This is not only academia discussing things on a podcast and in theory. This is this is actually, you know, in the line of fire, what we do all the time, all throughout the week, bringing you then the information that we've accumulated and amassed and implemented for our clients in different areas. Now we have a couple of different strategies available. We have a range of investments, anywhere from 10000 to a 500000 minimum. And yes, we are open for business. I just want to get the record straight on that. And uh, we do implement investment programs for clients and work for, you know, creating portfolios and portfolio management ongoing, et cetera. Anyway, just want to mention that because I got, I think, probably three or four emails in this week alone, which tells me that people are thinking like, oh, what do I do now? That's what it tells me, by the way. Because they're thinking, hey, you know what? I'm unclear about what's going on right now within the markets. I don't know what to do with my money. I'm nervous or I want to get in or who knows. But what's happening is that something is going on. And that's what that's telling me. And I think that it's important to understand that you're not alone. So if you're out there thinking, you know, I'm confused or I don't know what to do. You're not alone, but that's why we're here, right? That's why we come together each and every week to talk about money and finance, and I bring in such great guests, so we're going to get to that as well. Um, I wanted to uh, start with – oh, by the way, go over to disciplinedinvestor.com and see all the different strategies, et cetera, we have there. Okay. I want to talk about – I want to start off with a recap, a little bit of a recap of what happened in July, because in July there was a lot that went on, and um, it was, I would say uh, – It was a bumpy ride for investors, but clearly by the end of the month in, in January into the start of February too, there was, you know, a big uptick in a resurgence in, Hey, you know what? Things will be better. Maybe we're not going to have a hard landing and a big recession and what's going on in Europe is better and this and that. And, ah, sigh of relief. And there was a lot of concerns, a lot of concerns, a lot of headwinds, a lot of issues and, Each of the benchmark indices actually turned in a nice positive number. The NASDAQ, the growth side, was way ahead. And that was, I think, what we talked about at the end of December, right? We talked in December about specifically the opportunity for us to see a big rally in sometime into January. I I figured the second week or so would really kick it off and maybe last a little while. It actually started the second week uh, after the first week, not, not the latter part of January. Uh, and, and it was pretty pronounced. I mean, things that you'd be like, oh, that's that's gone. That stock's going out of business. No, no. Up, you know, 100%. Uh, those names that you'd be like, ah, fundamentally probably not going to have a good year. Missed earnings. Didn't matter. We look at companies all over the place. You know, we see that what is going on right now is pretty, I would say, opposite of what you would consider to be logical. <laughs> okay? And, and you're probably sitting there and asking yourself a question. It's very simple. What the hell is going on? I'm sure you're saying that, right? I'm sure you're nodding your head too right now. Yeah, I mean that's a question, and it's not again only you, because we saw that, for example, Apple comes out with numbers where you know some of the revenue growth is 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 at the levels they were back in 2016, and we saw some things in different areas that were really pretty ugly in terms of their their sales, and meanwhile it's down three or four percent, and the stock ends up rocking throughout the morning on Friday and into, into Friday. Microsoft, uh, the week before or so, come out with a bad outlook, really just kind of a questionable outlook. Stock is down 3 4%, rallies, and it's about $35 from where it was. We saw Amazon, ugly AWS numbers, and the list goes on. And what we see is that there is something going on, and maybe that is just the, well, maybe this is as bad as it gets. It's only going to get better from here. We can say that a lot of times, and oftentimes when we say that, probably not right. But then we saw, this was the crowning piece, on top of all the other ugly earnings numbers or outlooks that were concerning, even Meta, with its 24% increase on Thursday of last week, even with that, they missed EPS numbers. They did okay on revenue. The main issue there was what? It was all about the fact that they were cutting costs and a light little small little footnote, $40 billion share buyback. That was interesting. The ISM moved over 50, so now we're in expansion category again. The jobs numbers, holy mackerel, triple hot. And that was pretty amazing when we saw over 500,000 new jobs added to the NFP non-farm payroll uh, numbers and a unemployment rate that went down to 3.4%, and that was not so much re- reliant on the um, particular statistics that they can, you know, you see a lot of times talking about the, the labor participation rate, and there was some adjustments for some things that went on. But still, over 500,000 was above even the highest, which I think was Goldman out there, with like a 320 or 350 number. Hot, hot, hot. Now, meanwhile, things are down on these numbers on Friday morning. By the time the bell goes off, the Pavlovian response is to do what? let's just buy, it's down, let's buy. And those that did that didn't really fare very well if they held on. Because really the numbers spoke for themselves on all of these. And even though Apple did somehow manage to cling to a decent gain throughout the day, it's really questioning what's going on there. And maybe there's just some short covering going on or something. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, even when we look at this, what is the reason is what we want to know. Why is this happening? And I think it's pretty simple. I mean, it really is. It's pretty simple. It's not about fundamentals. I don't even think it's about, oh, the Fed is going to slow its roll because, you know, that narrative got squashed with the ISM number, with what the Fed said on, on Wednesday, and Powell was talking on Wednesday, and clearly with the wage numbers and the average work week, all of that inclusive of the jobs number on Friday. So what is going on, right? What is going on is that you have something called momentum, and you start getting squeezes and shorts are getting the hell out of Dodge because the stocks are up 20 30% a day. That's not palatable or even, you know, you can't, you can't deal with that. And the shorts keep on, on maybe going out, then they reload, and they get blown out, and it be, creates this very, his, this mass hysteria. Mass hysteria. And that's a problem. Because a lot of this is really all based on just hot money right now, and we're really not focused on the fundamentals. When we see that the S&P is starting to approach 4,200, and estimates of earnings are, I don't know, 215 to 225, if it gets there. We've talked about this, and the last few times we talked about this, 200 points away from where we are now. We're talking about 18.5 to 20 PE with the potential for higher interest rates in the future and maybe a slowdown of the economy. Something is wrong. Now, when I see that, I start to get, I question things. I start to get concerned. These overshoots, it's its more natural than it has been in the past. We see a lot of these these days. The overshoot to the top, to the bottom. We see that, you know, momentum gets too hot, too cold. People get crazy. People get scared. People have FOMO. They can't wait to get the hell in. Then they can't wait to get the hell out. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, push me, pull me, yin and yang kind of situation. But I think what's happening right now is there is a disbelief that anything can possibly go wrong and the Fed is going to continue on their path, but be gentle. They're going to be gentle. No more harsh increases. But I'll tell you something right now, we continue to see good jobs numbers and we continue to see some of this inflation starting to come down a little bit, but not tapering off as fast. We're going to be in for higher rates for longer. And remember, even if they stop, we're still at the, you know, 4 and 5% range. Even though yields on the 10-year have flopped down a point and a half. Financial conditions have eased dramatically, and that's what's going on right here. The Fed does not want this. When I say the Fed doesn't want this, I don't know what they want, to be honest with you. I'm just telling you from a standpoint of what is, I would say, textbook, which Powell has been following The worst thing that can happen is getting behind this again. In other words, falling behind in this process. Something we're going to talk about with our guests. We're going to get to that in a second. Let me just mention Interactive Brokers again because they have a new recurring investment tool and it offers convenience and flexibility by allowing clients to easily set up and execute a predetermined investment strategy through automatic recurring investments. So this powerful tool utilizes fractional shares trading to help maximize the value of your investments. Basically, it makes it easier to dollar cost average into positions and reach your financial goals because a lot of times that's not so easy to do. Not only reach your goals, but also dollar cost average into positions. So whether you're looking to build wealth over time or simply want to make sure that you're consistently taking advantage of market opportunities, the recurring investments tool is available for consideration. And investors can easily learn how to use IBKR's recurring investment tool through the comprehensive tutorial in the Trader's Academy at IBKR.com. Learn more by going to IBKR.com. Simply click search for IBKR recurring investments to access the tutorial. And our guest today is Eric Townsend. He is a hedge fund manager. He is also the host of a fabulous podcast called Macro Voices. This guy has a lot of depth. We're going to learn a lot. We're going to cover a lot of areas because uh, when we've had him on last time, which was years ago, I remember we we covered all sorts of really fascinating areas. So I want to thank you in advance for coming on and for entertaining us, Eric, and for and for and for educating us at the same time. So, uh, how things been?
1: Fantastic. Thanks for having me back, Andrew. And I should mention, too, uh, we finally updated the Macro Voices announcer script. It's been calling me hedge fund manager for, for years and years, but I actually closed that fund in 2018. But,
0: but, but it doesn't, you know, if you were a doctor, we could, you know, you retired, we could still say you were a doctor in your past gives people the, 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 the understanding that you were not only a theorist, but you also, you know, boots on the ground and, and, and hands uh, in the dough.
1: That, that works for me, but believe it or not, I actually have gone through several rounds of uh, brokers finding out from a podcast. They hear that I'm fund manager okay. and they switch my market data subscriptions back to uh, oh, to professional and charge oh, me more. It's that, crazy. Uh, you
0: know, it's funny that you mentioned that. I totally get that. I totally understand that. And you know what's funny about that? And most people that are listening probably don't care about this. The one thing that I've always been bothered with for years is that if you have multiple platforms that you're getting, let's say, real-time quotes on, and for whatever reason, it's an overlap and you use maybe, you know, one for this, one for that, they charge you every single platform the same professional fees. I'm thinking, wait, if I want New York Stock Exchange live data, who cares what platform it's on?
1: Well, yeah, if you pay for it three or four times. And the the thing is, there's so little integration in the software in this business that you end up having to pay for it several times because nobody provides one integrated software suite that does everything you need it to do. Yep. So everybody has to pay for three or four market data subscriptions. It's yep. nuts.
0: Crazy. So uh, let's go back and talk to me about, um, you know, your, your, your background. You did of course, you were you were in, in in different areas. Then you moved into the area of investing, and then, um, you know, obviously back in what was it seventeen? I think it was you started your podcast. But I don't. Like, you tell me about that.
1: Well, I was a software entrepreneur in the beginning, uh, sold my company in 98. I was 33 years old at the time, made enough money that I could retire, was foolish enough to try to do that at that age. And as you know, that, that never works. So I lived in a boat in South Florida for a while and tried to be, you know, Mr. Retired Guy. That didn't work. And I ended up, uh, not really being sure what I was going to do next. And then, um, our friends at Goldman Sachs lost <laughs> most of my money. Actually, uh, I shouldn't say most of that cause I, I don't want them to sue me, but I, I had a relationship that turned out to be unsatisfactory with ah, the private banking gotcha. community. Mm-hmm. And, um, basically out of necessity needed to reinvent myself as a private investor. And I didn't think that was going to be satisfying because I imagined what traders do as being like the Graham and Dodd style of sit in, you know, review balance sheets and, oh, and yeah. look Gre- at green, and- green,
0: uh, green visor and sharp pencil
1: yeah you know and and i knew that i was not that guy and i was thinking well i guess i have to learn to be that guy because i need to make some money because the private bankers didn't didn't serve me very well and uh, I had lost a significant portion of my wealth by being a, a, by allowing somebody else to run my money for me and uh, choosing, you know, little shops like yours are a different story. But the big banks, as far as I can tell, are, are mostly corrupt. So uh, I was thinking that I was not going to like this. And I started reading Jim Rogers uh, no, stuff and yeah. particularly the Market Wizards books. I'm like, wait a minute. You can spend your days learning about interesting aspects of what's going on in the world and geopolitics and and relationships between countries and then expand that a little bit to understand how it relates to currencies and commodity prices and and actually make money from being interested in how the world works that's possible. So it was a huge eye-opener for me. And I really just fell in love with macroeconomics it, out, of, out of initially necessity, not thinking I was going to like any kind of being a, a full-time trader. And when I learned about macro, I'm like, okay, I found my thing. So I, I did that for a few years. And um, I had a bunch of friends who were hedge fund managers, and they said, Eric, you're doing all the work of running a fund. You know, we know private investors. They're guys that that trade stocks on their iPhones at the golf club. You know, you're, you're sitting in front of 14 computer monitors for 12 hours a day. Mm-hmm. That's not private investor. That's fund manager who's not getting paid as a fund manager. Mm-hmm. You should be running a fund. That was really, really bad advice because – you know this, but but for the benefit of our listeners, what I didn't get was it seemed like what they said made sense. You know, I'm already running my own money. I'm making the investment decisions. If all I have to do is call a lawyer and turn that into a legal entity that allows other people to trade alongside me or to, you know, to invest alongside me and I'll do the trading and, and get paid a commission for that, you know, why not? Mm-hmm. Well, as you know, uh, managing money and investor relations are two different things when you have outside investors and you're running other people's money you've got a job that's all about interfacing with those people and their emotions it's not about running money and uh so i got to the point where i had one particular problem child of, of an investor and just decided, okay, this running other people's money is not for me. It was affecting my investment performance. I'm losing money in the fund for other investors and my own money because I'm not coping well with, uh, with the whole other people's money thing. So I don't know how guys like you do it. I did it for five years and, uh, you know, turned not, out not to be it, for me. It's, it's interesting and,
0: because there is that, um, some people can't run their own money. There are, there are people who just can't, you know, physically run their own money because, uh, you know, their emotions on that side directly with them and the, oh my gosh, and the outlook, I lost money. And they just magnify that over time and they get like, I, 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 I can't make good decisions. There's other people that can't run other people's money, right? You follow what I'm saying? Because as you say, uh, it's all of their emotions that come into play and all of their issues and problems. I'm not talking about things like, oh, I need to change the account titling. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the the things that come up, like, hey, we're you know we're down five percent, and, and oh my God, you need to pull all my money out of the market. Wait, look, look, look. the market is down twenty five percent. You're down five percent. I think we're kind of on the right track here to grab the next swing on the other side. You know, and why are you getting out now at this point? You know those things, and and there are people like that, right? Um, and to answer your question, uh, I have learned to uh, recognize that my job is not a money psychologist for them because a lot of people in, in my business think they are, that's their job, right? They sit there and they're, they're, a, they're a, the money coach. It's like, no, I'm just running the money. Everybody knows it. And let's just move on. So, but I get You
1: it. don't, you're apparently able to not be affected when the guy's freaking out on the phone on you because you're down 3% and the rest of the market's down 20% and the guy's flipping out, yeah. you've got a thick enough skin to say, look, I know I'm doing a good job here. If you can't see that, you're welcome to move on to a different correct. money. Menu. That's correct. That's correct. I I got sucked in. I I got to the point where I'm looking at the market down at what should be a buying opportunity. Right, uh, you know, there's this this spike down on an inventory report on crude oil. I know it's not going to last. That should be a jump on it and buy. But I'm thinking this one investor who keeps calling me up and freaking out. You know, I can't put more risk on the table because right. this guy is going to lose it on me and I'm, and I'm letting that get to me and it's yep. affecting my trading. Yep. You've got to have the discipline to not do that. But I think something else you said is really important, which is something that I gained and I, I still do it to this day is. When you're running your own money, you generally don't keep really records or anything. You just kind of do your own thing. When you're running a fund, you have to produce what we call a tear sheet. At the end of the month, this is what I made or lost in percent down to the hundredth of a percent, down to one basis point. This is how much I made or lost. And you've got a little spreadsheet called a tear sheet that shows for the whole year and what last year looked like, you know, up or down by how much, what was my biggest down month. Having having to produce that puts a certain amount of discipline on you. Yeah. And what I learned from running the fund is I still produce the tear sheet. Nobody sees it but me because I don't have to, you know, show it to anyone else. But by going through that process, if I see a, a, a you know, a 12% down in one month, okay, I got to look myself in the mirror and, and think about whether or not it makes sense to have the amount of volatility in my account mm-hmm. that I have. Right. Is there a good reason for this? Did I, did I make an intelligent decision that I'm taking that kind of risk because I really see an opportunity or am I just over levered? What's going on here? And so it really does. I think, you know, running other people's money forces you to be accountability. much more disciplined accountability. How you yeah, yeah, it's accountability. Exactly. Yeah. And also having the measurement, you know, because otherwise if you're just running your own money and you you know, I'm, I know I'm down a lot this year, but I don't really want to figure out the percentage because it's going to be depressing. So I'm not going to look that that's not good. Yeah. It's like
0: driving, you know, when you're driving around, you can be driving in circles for all day and you're like, man, I, 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 did I go far? Look how far I went. But if you actually take (laughs) out a map and plot your course and where you were and put it against maybe where you thought you would be and you're like, wait a minute. I actually made 300 miles in circles, didn't get anywhere. Versus, I really want to get 25 miles north. You know what I'm saying? So it's it's that measurement. I agree with you totally on that. So that's that's a good lesson, though. That's very good. So, now are you are you these days? Where is your or or through this whole process? Now, I want to get back to macro voice in a second, but did you do you have a a a, a area of the market that's like that's where I feel I am most comfortable?
1: Oh, yeah. It's entirely about energy for me. And the way that I got there was first I learned about global warming. I saw Al Gore's movie and so forth. And I was a skeptic. I'm still a skeptic. And the way that I feel about it now is I don't know, nor do I care whether or not. Uh, climate change poses a real risk to humanity. What I do know for absolute certain is that we have to transition off of fossil fuels. My reason is not the reason that all the climate guys want to do that. We can talk more about it if you want, but I'll warn you, it's a, it's a long conversation. So I look at the whole climate uh, climate change preoccupation that half of society has, and it's been politicized now. So you know, if you're politically left, you got to be climate change. If you're politically right, you got to be skeptical of climate change, which seems pretty silly to me. Mm. I don't know if they're doing this for the right reasons or the wrong reasons, but they are doing the right thing, which is we've got to make an intelligent plan to get off of fossil fuels. And the reason, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, climate change, there's definitely some compelling evidence. It may be real. I'm not sure it's quite as uh, uh, impending or, or or extreme as some people seem to think it is. But what I do know for certain is that although we're not running out of oil yet, it's going to take a long time to transition off of fossil fuels. And we're already at the point, And we, we almost started to get to what people call peak oil back in 2007. Oh, yeah. And once you got the uh, great financial crisis. There's this mountain of easy money from Federal Reserve monetary policy that financed the whole shale oil boom. So we used a combination of technology and easy money. Most people think it's all about horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing. It was really more about easy money that made the shale boom possible. That bought us another 15 years. Okay, we've used up that 15 years. Oil prices are going to continue to trend higher. And I predict it will be into a deep global energy crisis uh, by the mid-2020s, Some, sometime by 2025, I think we'll really be in the thick of it. Now, that's reversible. The reason that it happened is because we're trying to phase out fossil fuels before phasing in viable ah, replacements. I'm glad you that's said that. That's nuts. I'm glad you said that. That thinking, is nuts.
0: This whole thing, first of all, just that we're calling it climate change, we know it's political because forever it was called global warming. And when they didn't like that it was warm and it got cold too, we had to change it to the whole thing because so, people were freaking out, right? Because every time they saw a snow a snowflake, it's like, wait a second, there's no global warming. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> everybody got nuts. So we had to like put it into words that everybody could understand. So I mean, I think there there is that possibility, whether or not it's, it's, I agree with you, we're doing it or not or, or however it's happening. I mean, there is the possibility. It's also... Could be that one thing, like in religion, that there is a heaven and hell, and that's a great stick to try to change things, because whether or not there is a hell, the fact is that someone who is a true believer may think twice about doing something, thought that they're going to burn in hell for, the, for for eternity, maybe they won't steal that car or whatever it may be. You follow what I'm saying? And and, and maybe the the idea that with, with Gore put up uh, and the rest of the industry to try to change things, who knows? I'm just saying, I agree. I think I'm on the same page as you, is my point. But what about other areas like natural gas? Is that in that same genre or are we really focusing on, on, on oil?
1: Well, for me, it starts with energy is so important to the future of humanity. And people don't really think about this. But, you know, do you work on a farm, Andrew? No, you, you run money. What about your listeners? Do they all work on farms? I'm guessing not. Well, 200 years ago, everybody worked on farms because there was no alternative before we had energy from first coal and then oil, everybody had to work on a farm because there was no way to feed ourselves if we didn't have everybody working on farms. Now there's this tiny, tiny little percentage of society called farmers that do all the work that everybody used to have to pitch in for because they've got mechanized farming equipment that runs on today crude oil. Now, is it is it about oil for me? No, it's about energy and it's about the future of humanity and how we're going to transition to long term sustainable energy solutions. But if that's your focus and you want to trade markets, look, the world runs on crude oil. That's just the the reality uh, of the world we live in. And And, you know, one of my biggest arguments with the, the climate community is, look, I'm totally with them that we need to transition off of fossil fuels. But the reality is we've been subsidizing wind and solar for more than two full decades now, and they still supply less than 2% of our overall energy supply. So we're at the very, very tiny beginning of this journey and wind and solar are not gonna be enough. We're, we, we need to get serious about nuclear and there's also a possibility of geothermal having a much more important role, but only if we can get through some big technology breakthroughs first. The, the point, really, though, is to me, it's all about energy. But if you're going to be about energy, yeah, natural gas is, is part of the energy world. You, it's a very specialized thing to trade, though. The, the Nat Gas Contract, as I'm sure you know, has the nickname of being the Widowmaker because yep. weather has so much to do with natural gas. There's so many things, if you're not really, you know, you kind of have to be just a Nat Gas trader. Or just an oil trader, or you got to be on a desk where there's a lot of resources supporting you in order to be able to trade both. Yeah, Uh, I chose
0: a coach at a psychological counselor trading something that would be (laughs) natural gas. Exactly. So (laughs) I chose
1: to trade crude oil and I focused mostly on the term structure of crude oil, the, the backwardation or contango, whether the near dated contracts are more expensive or less expensive than the long dated contracts, because that's giving the most important long term signals about where the market is headed. But the reason that I have, you know, that I became a full time oil trader, which is what I've been doing for the last 10 years, is out of a passionate interest in the future of humanity and what we're going to do about this energy problem. And, you know, again, in the climate change thing, my attitude is, look, they're doing the right thing, which is really wanting to get off of fossil fuels. They're going about it the completely backwards way. They think they can, you know, just stop oil before phasing in replacements. That's suicide. That's absolutely nuts. But getting off of fossil fuels and having that goal is something we have to do. So I don't care whether climate change is real or not real. The climate guys want to do the right thing. If they're doing it for the wrong reason, that's fine with me. Yeah. Yeah. A little Machiavelli. That's where there. my passion is. A right. little, little and reverse what I'm, Machiavelli. And I think what we're on the cusp of, if you want, you know, my my big 10 year market call. Yeah. It's been not time yet for nuclear for like the last 50 years. I think it's finally time yet for nuclear to have a renaissance. And it's going to be a tough ride because there's so much public perception, but it's starting to turn around. And even the climate guys are starting to realize, hey, we've been building wind and solar for like 25 years and it's 2% of the energy supply. Maybe we need to figure out other ways that don't produce greenhouse gases that can do this. And what they, a lot of them don't realize is like 50 years ago, we invented much better nuclear reactors that are not susceptible to meltdowns that are completely unable to have a meltdown that don't even use a water coolant so that they can't have steam flashes. They, they, they can't have hydrogen explosions like the one that blew the roof off the building in, in Fukushima. Uh, they, they, you know, there's much better ways to do this But the government has really done a lousy job of advancing the best technologies. I think what's going to happen is we're going to have an energy crisis globally in the mid-2020s. Everybody's going to freak out, and that's going to change the attitude completely about nuclear. And it's going to take 10 years to build it out before it solves any problems, and it's going to be a very unpleasant time for humanity, but I think that huge investment in nuclear is coming in the next few years.
0: Can I tell you how to solve the nuclear problem with all the people that are skeptics, not only skeptics, all the political problems with it and all the people freaking out about it? It's very simple. It's very simple. Change the name.
1: Just. I, I have the exact same thing, but it goes the back name. to. it goes back to the government screwing everything up. There are incredibly strict regulations that you cannot change the name. If you don't say the word nuclear, you can't have a, a, a fission reaction. I, I, you know, I want to change the name to green fission or something. Yes. You know, that's exactly what it means. <laughs> yeah. there, there's already laws in place that make it illegal for anyone to even call it that if they're in that business. <clears throat> that's how badly the government is screwing this Maybe up. Maybe
0: spell it like nuclear energy, New, N-E- <laughs> you know, nuclear energy. And it'd be like, Oh, look at that. Uh, But you also, you, you told me we talked uh, um, before we about um, you have a documentary on energy transfer, right?
1: Well, I'm working on a documentary series. The first version of it is going to be like a low budget YouTube version that I'm working with some uh, video editors. It's just going to be my own voice as the narrator and a bunch of, uh, you know, video on top of that low budget documentary series. My goal is to turn that into a proper broadcast a quality documentary series that would be on Netflix or something and have a celebrity narrator and interviews with all the right people and all that stuff. That's like a $3 million production budget. I'm not going to put that out of my own. So are you
0: asking me now to narrate? Is that what this is all about? (laughs)
1: <laughs> no actually you know the guy that i want as narrator the ultimate guy uh, to get is leonardo dicaprio because uh. if you could turn him around from being the most out of touch with reality which is where he is now but he's also like the most passionate guy in hollywood ab- about you know the, the the future of energy and, and the environment and so forth mm. if you can get him to realize that. St- Phasing out fossil fuels before phasing in uh, replacements is is the right way to do this. He'd be perfect, but I think that's a tough sell.
0: But I know you do also. Let's go back to uh, the other side of things because you, you we 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 got to the area that you enjoy, you're passionate about, and why you're passionate about oil and trading oil and all that. But you're still a macro guy, and as a matter of fact, you have a a a, a, a podcast called Ma- uh, Macro Voices, right?
1: So yeah, so- macro. Uh, you know, when I read about Jim Rogers style of investing, these kind of understand, you know, when there's an earthquake in Chile, it means the price of copper is going to go up. Well, how come? Why? Okay, because Chile has the, the most severe earthquakes and the most copper mines. And okay, understanding geopolitics and news events and how they're going to affect markets was just so fascinating to me because it's like I always wanted to be that guy who's more in the know about geopolitics and history and stuff. But you know, you got to be motivated. If you don't have skin in the game, who's really got time to closely follow politics in other countries and stuff? Well, macro trading to me is a way to be financially compensated for really spending a lot of energy, learning as much as you can about how the world really works. And it's just so fascinating to me. So uh, I've always enjoyed that. And when I shut the hedge fund down five years ago, you know, the hedge fund was originally conceived as kind of a marketing tool to gain interest in my hedge fund. So once the hedge fund shut down, why not shut down the podcast? And the reason I've kept it uh, and don't intend to shut it down is it's so stimulating to me to talk to really smart people about different macro subjects every week. Uh, It's intellectual stimulation. It's very rewarding. And I've got it now at a point where, you know, I've got a a uh, co-host who's running a company that benefits from, uh, he sells trading, you know, lessons on trading to, uh, to retail traders. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that helps to defray the production costs. And it gives me an opportunity just, you know, to kind of spend my retirement talking to really interesting people and supporting my own trading by, uh, the intellectual stimulation of talking to really smart people every week. And you had Jim so Rogers. So I really his, enjoy it.
0: Right. you had Jim Rogers. Jim Rogers
1: was my first interview yeah, back in 2016.
0: Yeah. I've yep. had him a couple of times over the years. So, so what other areas? I mean, can we talk a little bit about um, like what the Federal Reserve is doing and what you have to observe that because that obviously has an impact on the dollar, which then has an impact on oil prices,
1: right? Yeah, I mean, I think that we're in this very long term game that is obviously unsustainable. But, you know, the old saying in, in the uh, shipping business is the bigger the ship, the longer it takes to change course. When you're talking about the government of the United States and major institutions like the U.S. dollar's role as the global reserve currency, you know, these are really big, slow-moving ships that only change course very slowly. And so we're living through the slow-motion end of the cycle. You know, reserve currencies only last for a couple of hundred years at most, usually I think 110 years is the median Uh, You know, duration of a global reserve currency. We're well past that now with the U.S. dollar. How much longer does it have? You know, you got to count these things in decades, not in months or years. So it's not like it's going to go away tomorrow. But there's a lot of uh, a growing number of countries around the world that are frustrated with the, what they perceive as an unfair advantage that the United States derives from controlling the world's global reserve currency, so that uh, the BRICS countries are trying to you know, create their own. They want to compete with it by creating their own reserve currency that they hope will replace the U.S. dollar. Now, you're talking about uh, replacing something that's very well entrenched and that so many things rely on. That replacing, it's not just a matter of, you know, competing with the, you know, opening up a sandwich shop, competing with the guy down the street. You, you've literally got the entire global financial system is anchored to the U.S. dollar. So changing that is going to happen over a period of decades. But it's slowly happening. We're, we're seeing the beginnings of, of the end for the dollar's hegemony over the global financial system. And I'm convinced that what will replace the US dollar as the new global reserve currency, will be a digital currency. And I don't mean cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. I think it's much more likely to be a state-backed central bank digital currency. Is it one that the Federal Reserve introduces as digital dollars? Or is it one that China and Russia jointly introduce as uh, the, the BRICS dollar or something that's competing with the US dollar for control of the global financial system? I don't know, but it seems pretty clear to me that a digital currency, not a cryptocurrency but a digital currency that's state-backed is got to be the future the question is who's going to be first to not so much first to market but who's going to control or dominate that market of central bank digital currencies um, i think it's going to be a very interesting time when the u.s dollar stops being the center of the global uh, financial system and something else is it's going to be a huge time of change for markets. And I'm not predicting that in the next month or year. I'm, I'm saying in our lifetimes, it's happening.
0: You know, it's interesting because um, the idea of a digital currency has been evolving, I think, in, in, in a very quiet manner, uh, paying with Visa, in a way, is a digital currency, right? You know, it, it's money just, there's no real cash cash. It's just money rolling around from balance sheet to, uh, to, 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 to deposit into this account, to this holding You know, it moves around, in other words, right? Whereas, I mean, when we think about uh, digital currency, true digital currency, we always think of blockchain and things of that nature. But it doesn't necessarily have to be. It can be some other kind of book entry, like where we went from holding stock certificates, that's the way that you would move it around, and how you'd have to you know buy it and sell it, and you'd actually get physical certificates, and that changed to book entry to you know just basically um, you know nobody gets stock certificates anymore, right? But you know we're we're slowly but surely moving in that direction anyway, don't you
1: think? Oh, absolutely, and you know as you say, it, it there's a number of. Phases that we've been through. In the beginning, there was really and truly, you know, cash paid for everything. Very few people used checkbooks or credit cards in the 1960s. You get into the 70s and 80s, and credit cards were the thing. But still, those are digital accounting systems. You're not talking really about a digital currency. Uh, what what we're talking about now with central bank digital currencies are true digital currencies, where the actual unit of money can be transferred through a computer network. So you really are moving cash as opposed to checks. Everything that happened before the cryptocurrencies PayPal PayPal or, or, you know, paying with Visa or whatever. It was essentially an electronic version of a check. Right. You know, I've got an account. You've got an account. It's going to be cleared by a clearing system. And everybody's, you know, everybody's got to have an account that's registered in their name and it's reported to the IRS and all that stuff. When you're dealing with true digital currencies, you can actually move cash across a computer network. It's like handing somebody a $100 bill. It's not like handing them a check. So it's a completely different thing, although it is still part of a progression. You know, we started with, I mean, going way back, it, there was no money. It was barter for, you know, I'll, I'll give you a a. a, a yeah, a, a bushel a, full of grain a, in exchange for right. a pair of shoes or right. something. When we got to the point where there was money and then there was checks and then there was credit cards and then there was PayPal and so forth. This is a pretty big change to digital currency that really is a, a digital unit of money that can be moved across a computer network that started with Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies, central bank, digital currencies. I predicted in my book in 2018, Um, it's all happening, but it's only just barely beginning. You know, everybody's acting like, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's now it's the big thing. It's not the big thing yet. What we're headed toward is eventually getting to total government control over the money system Mm -hmm. so that any penny that you own, the government knows when you got it, where you got it, who you got it from. Who they got it from? and yeah, the will automatically you know, tax it. Right, the automatic and, taxes—that's and, and, the point. And yeah, you'll and that the way they'll sell it to you is you'll never have to pay taxes again. Why do you never have to pay taxes again? <laughs> right. Because you won't have a choice. They'll take it out all by themselves. So, are you and, a
0: fan of Bitcoin, Ethereum, or any other coin itself? The the notion of those. So let me just back up and ask this question a little bit differently. There's a lot of people who are Bitcoin maximalists or crypto maximalists or whatever you want to call exactly what they are. Okay, that they come over with the idea that you know the governments. Well, the governments are they can confiscate, they can they can they can debase, they can do all these things what they do with currencies, right? Uh, the, 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 there's a loss of freedom. There's a chance that you know you can be uh, taken. Whereas their ideas, well, if you have like a Bitcoin or a true digital currency outside the arms of a government, well, that's just a great thing because then all those things can happen and it creates all sorts of wondrous things. I've been of the framework of, hey, you know what? I can never see a government giving up the ability to, we'll call it massage their currency because that is eco 101, part and parcel of how a government regulates their economy is through a currency. Would you agree with that?
1: Oh, absolutely. And the way that I, you know, the way that I think about the Bitcoin maximalists and so forth is I feel for them. I I agree with them only to the extent that if any part of what they think is going to happen were realistic, uh, I kind of Uh, believe in their values, if I thought there was even a 1% chance that any of their pipe dreams could come true, they think in a lot of cases that it's impossible for the government to do anything about Bitcoin, which is utter nonsense. Mm -hmm. The reason that Bitcoin hasn't been outlawed is because the government is, is just so slow and bureaucratic and stupid that they haven't really got their heads completely around what it is yet and how great of a threat it is to the government's hegemony over the financial system. Once governments figure that out and they, they pretty much figured it out. Now they're just slow to take action, to do something about it. What they're going to do is they're going to institute their own digital currencies in the way that, that almost everybody else, other than me, interpreted, you know, the Bitcoin white paper when it first came out was they like, OK, Satoshi has done, you know, the greatest good deed for, you know, libertarian values, because now the government won't be able to do anything about it. and We'll have our own money system independent of the government. The way I looked at it is Satoshi screwed up. Satoshi just let the cat out of the bag. Now governments are going to know how they can take the concept that Satoshi, whoever that is, invented in Bitcoin, and re-implement a new digital currency with exactly the opposite objectives. Mm. And trying instead of trying to make it impossible for governments to know what's going on in the in the financial affairs of private citizens, they'll design an opposite digital currency system which allows government total control—not just to see what you're doing, but to claw back and reverse your transactions. So if you bought, you know, I buy something from you, you give me a thousand dollars. I've got your money and I'm not gonna give it back. Well, the government can decide they don't approve of that sale and they can undo the transaction and either give you back your money, whether you asked for it or not, taking it away from me, Or they can keep it for themselves so that neither one of us has the thousand dollars and they say, oh, well, we're thinking about this and uh, we're not sure if this transaction is valid and we'll get back to you in five years after we. It's like every one of these
0: movies that has the creation of some great technology that all of a sudden the government wants to take it for use in warfare.
1: In this case, it is for in for use in the exact opposite of what Satoshi invented. Exactly. They they wanted to have financial independence. So the government couldn't do anything. They turned the the keys to the kingdom over to the government and they gave them the technology that governments will use to create a digital currency, which in my book I called the Orwell. It's it's the digital currency that allows the government to control everything. Mm. And unfortunately, I, I think that's where we're headed. Um, the Bitcoin will be al- around for a very long time, but it will eventually probably be outlawed by governments. And, you know, just like when you outlaw guns, uh, then outlaws still have guns. Outlaws will still have Bitcoin. They'll continue to operate the network, but it won't be what it is today. And, and the institutional participation and in it won't be there. Mm. Decentralized finance, which is the use of blockchains and distributed ledger to do other things besides having a currency that competes with the government is going to completely revolutionize the finance industry because tokenizing virtually all asset classes is going to make a lot of sense. The technology is not quite there yet because as long as we have these proof-of-work validated blockchains, that's, that's the reason that you hear about Bitcoin using up more electricity than entire nations. That's getting replaced. There's a newer, better way to build a distributed ledger called proof of stake. Mm -hmm. There'll probably be other ways besides, you know, first there was proof of work. Now there's proof of stake. There'll probably be something else after that. The technology will get better. And as it does, it'll become more and more practical for the entire finance industry to, you know, forget you talked about stock certificates. Forget about stock certificates. It'll be a digital token that exists on a network that you can transact with anybody anywhere. It'll be much better someday, but we're not quite there yet. We need to get beyond proof of work validated blockchains before mm-hmm. that's going to be practical.
0: Yeah, let's, let's uh, finish up and loop all the way back around to, uh, as we call it in the Northeast, Earl. You know, the Earl, we got to talk about, my grandfather would be like, you know, you got to get some Earl for the car. Um, <laughs> so a lot of what's going on right now in Russia uh, you know, we had that spike again, right? We had the panic moment. We had, the, you know, the, the concern about, um, you know, this cold winter in, in Europe and, and pricing. And, and um, so, so I have two questions. First, uh, because I'm a boater uh, and this weekend there were some questions raised once again, which frankly I've never really looked into. What's the deal with diesel prices being way over the price of gasoline? Are you familiar with why that is?
1: Yeah, there's. I mean, back in the day, you had so much demand for gasoline. Uh, it diesel actually contains more energy per gallon. You know, you know, of liquid product, but there was so much more demand for gasoline, and also the way that we refine gasoline. Basically, you you run through a refinery, you get so many barrel, you know, so many barrels of crude go in, so many barrels of gasoline, and so many barrels of diesel come out. And if you want to be able to adjust. That proportion of how much diesel you get and how much gasoline you get, it needs a basically more expensive refinery equipment to be able to really tweak that the, the way you want to. Most refineries kind of have to give you the, the uh, proportions that is based on how heavy the crude oil that goes into the process is to start mm-hmm. with. So you've got, uh, you know, crude oil goes in, certain amount of gasoline, certain amount of diesel comes out. And then it's supply and demand. Back in the day, everybody had gasoline cars and they were gas guzzling gasoline cars. There was lots of demand on gasoline. There was less demand on diesel. And that kept diesel prices lower, even though diesel has more energy in it per gallon. That's reversed for a number of reasons. And one of the reasons has to do with uh, IMO 2020, which is the new marine regulations. Back in the day. Big ships at sea didn't burn diesel fuel. They burned a completely different grade called bunker fuel, which was incredibly polluting. It was full of yeah, that sulfur. Was the black smoke super, that came out of the top. Yeah, and, and you'd see, actually, if you're boating off the coast of Florida, you know that those ships coming into port don't really show a lot of smoke. But if you're out in the middle of the Gulf Stream, you see those ships go by and there's like these huge clouds of black smoke coming off the top of them. Well, the reason is they only... Uh, use the the environmental regulations say they have to use a kind of diesel fuel that that complies with the same kind of diesel fuel you have to run in your boat. That's only when they're in U.S. territorial waters. Once they're outside of territorial waters, they can switch over to bunker fuel that's full of sulfur and they completely uh, pollute the atmosphere over the ocean where it's not in anybody's jurisdiction. So there's no EPA to come and chase them down. And eventually those big clouds of sulfur smoke blow into somebody's country and, you know, pollute their atmosphere and create acid rain and so forth. So in 2020, they imposed new regulations that basically require the shipping industry to use a different grade of fuel that doesn't pollute the the. Uh, the air over our oceans with a whole bunch of sulfur that has done a lot also to push the prices of, of uh, diesel fuel up. Interesting. So there's an, a number of different factors that contribute to it. But I think that what you're going to see is, unfortunately, I think that everybody's misunderstanding what's really going on geopolitically. They think that Vladimir Putin woke up one day and suddenly decided for no reason to just go and invade Ukraine and the world is coming to Ukraine's rescue and you know it'll be over soon. I, I'm sorry, but I think that's propaganda. I don't think that's really what's going on. What's going on, as far as I'm concerned, is we're we're in a new proxy war between the united states and russia and you know just as the proxy war in vietnam didn't really have that much to do with the vietnamese they were the the victims unfortunately of a proxy war the the pawns that and it was their country that got blown up and their people that got killed so i certainly don't want to in any way minimize the the horrors that the ukrainian people are experiencing but i I don't think this is about ukraine i mean they're the victims of it but it's not about them. This is about U.S. and Russia that had, you know, we had a cold war with the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union collapsed, it kind of went on hold for a while. It's back. And it's about we, we just had a, a general in the U.S. military this week send a memo telling his uh, direct reports, basically, uh, get ready, because by 2025, he's expecting we're going to be fully at war with China. So, OK, we've got the great geopolitical powers of the world are back into cold war mode including fighting hot proxy wars as far as i can tell ukraine is just the first flashpoint you know if you think back to the the days of guatemala and the you know the 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 stuff that happened in latin america in the 80s it wasn't about any one of those countries or their governments. It, it was a much bigger picture than that. And it was just a question of, OK, where's the next proxy war event going to break out? So at the moment, it's all on Ukraine. It seems like things are suddenly heating up just in the last week or so with Iran. Uh, exactly, you know, whether or not that's a combination of U.S. and uh and Israel that are behind that, as a lot of people are alleging, I don't think has been proven yet. But one way or another, geopolitical conflicts are heating up. And the thing that people don't realize is, for all of our lives, we've had a situation where OPEC had a whole bunch of spare capacity and was pretty closely guarded secret as to how much they had. A lot of people speculated, boy, You know, if if uh, if oil prices started going up and OPEC wanted to increase production, how much do you think they could increase? Is it is it three million barrels a day they could increase? Is it two million barrels a day? Is it 10 million barrels a day? Mm. We don't know. We're trying to figure it out. That was the game in the oil industry. Now everybody knows the answer. None or almost none. Saudi Arabia has maybe a million barrels uh, a day of spare capacity. United Arab Emirates has some spare capacity. Everybody else in OPEC is already peddling as fast as they can. They're producing as much oil as they can. And they've even stopped using the word quotas. They're talking about targets now. It's like they used to try to constrain themselves to not produce beyond their quota that they agreed to, but they cheated a lot and they usually did. Now they're trying to hit their quotas. They're underproducing below the maximum amount that they're allowed to under the OPEC agreement. Really, Saudi and UAE are the only two OPEC members that have any spare capacity. And we've reached a point where we literally the the world cannot survive without Russian oil exports. Russia ex- exports about 8 million barrels a day of oil equivalent. So if you took half of that, just 4 million barrels a day off the market because you know somebody bombed the oil fields in Russia or, or Russia got pissed off and decided to take their oil off the market as an economic sanction or who knows what. It's not like, okay, Russia just took four million barrels off the market, so uh, Saudi Arabia has got to produce four million more. Nobody can make it up. Mm. When you talk about four million barrels coming off, there is nobody on Earth that can make that up. So it means we don't get to consume as much no matter what the price is. So I think it's very possible in the next few years that you're going to have some extraordinarily high uh, fuel prices for your boat. And Mm, uh, unfortunately for everything else.
0: And by the way, just to to end this, you know, when you talk about proxy wars uh, and you mentioned Vietnam, I've been to Vietnam. And when you talk about the war, they call it the American war. We call it the Vietnam war, right? Over here, well, you know, Vietnam war. Mm -hmm. They call it the American war just to show you that it clearly was, in their opinion, uh, a, 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 a war that was, you know, American based. And, and the fact is that I agree with you. This, this whole idea of, of uh, you know how things are shaping up right now and God forbid, who knows what happens if China does in fact do a little bit of invading in Taiwan or at least trying to get back or uh, scold them for their, you know, th- their view that they're no longer part of China. Um, this could uh, heat up pretty quickly. So interesting times. Interesting times. Oh. All right, listen. Now that I'm fully depressed on this, and now that I'm having to stock up on fuel for my boat for a long time to make sure that I don't get screwed, uh, I want to thank you for joining
1: us. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't have better news. It's all
0: right. Uh, it's, good. No, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, we'll have all the information on how to get in touch with you, your books, uh, you know, your, your podcast, all that on the show notes, episode number 802 of the Discipline Investor podcast. So, Eric Townsend, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much, Andrew. Thanks. See you next time. All right.
0: That's all we got. That's all we got for this show. The show we start out talking about what the hell's going on and ended up with some answers on peak energy issues. Kind of interesting uh, way to go through all of this, but that gave you some insights into what's going on in January the Momo, the FOMO, all that's going on with regard to markets and insights into the energy market as well as alternative energy or green energy and some of the things that are happening there. Thank you so much for joining me. Stop by thedisciplinedinvestor.com. See what's available there. Tell your friends, share. Send a little share. You're listening to this on iTunes or Spotify, wherever it is. Share it with a couple of friends right now. Do it right now. Thanks for joining me. I'll see you again next week. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida, and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company.